We read scripture this evening from 1 Peter chapter 5. Book of 1 Peter chapter 5. We read the chapter taking as our text the verses 8 through 11. We hear the inspired word of God. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elders, Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanius, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, salutest you, and so doth Marcus, my son. Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. As I stated, our text is taken from verses 8 through 11. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory, by Christ Jesus, After that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, our Lord Jesus Christ, the believer is constantly under attack. We've noticed repeatedly throughout this epistle that the apostle is encouraging those who are pilgrims, those who are strangers in the midst of this world, And he holds before them the reality of that struggle that is theirs in this world. The struggle is real. The struggle is intense. And as they live their lives in this world, as we live, there are struggles and pressures that are going to come against us. There's going to be persecution. Because our home is above. It's in heaven. And we're called to live in a world that's hostile to Christianity. 
And so the apostle has been taking careful time to instruct the believers how they are to live in all of the various aspects of our earthly life. How we are to live in connection with the authorities. How we are to live in connection with the relationships in which God puts us. How we are called to live in a life, in a world that's hostile to our very existence. All of the calling that the apostle directs to the saints can really be summed up in the words of our text here. We find ourselves in the midst of an intense spiritual battle. And this battle involves the devil, a most formidable adversary. And that devil is going about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Our enemy is no minor one. He's one who is crafty, is sly, and is seeking to destroy us. He's pictured here as the chief enemy of the church, the captain of the hosts of darkness. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper, we do so considering the seriousness of this attack, the calling that is ours to resist this adversary, and the need for Christ and for his shed blood as a covering for our sin. God sets before us the wondrous hope of deliverance through our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And we look at that, resisting our adversary. Noting, first of all, the adversary. Who is he? Secondly, the resistance that's necessary. And finally, the victory. In verse 8, we read, Your adversary, the devil. The devil originally was created, as we well know, as a good angel. He was even the head of all of the angels. And he stood with all the rest of the angels in a state of righteousness. The sovereign decree of election and reprobation not only affected men and women, children, but also the angels and the demons. There are elect angels who stand in glory with God in their original righteousness and glory. And there are some who have fallen away from that reprobate angels who fell away from the glory in which God had created and placed them. Satan did so as the head of those reprobate angels. And as he fell, he rebelled against God. He wanted the power and the authority that Jehovah God alone had. And he lifted himself up in pride then, attempting to gain that throne of God. Many angels joined him, and he took them with him in his fall, so that the devil and his hosts, fallen angels who are now called demons, await judgment, the sentence of judgment that God will direct them at the final return of Jesus Christ. Then they will be banished forever to hell. But now they are allowed for a time to roam this world and to cause trouble for the saints. The captain of this fallen host, the devil, has many names that are given to him through the Bible. Peter here uses the names adversary and devil. Adversary refers to an opponent in a lawsuit, one who's bringing an accusation that is unjust against someone. Devil refers to one who is slandering, one who is a false accuser. So we understand how these two words fit carefully together. The devil is an adversary. 
He hates God. He hates the fallen. He hates the good angels. And he hates the men and women who are aligned with God. He's a murderer from the beginning. And he's seeking the downfall and the destruction of the whole world. Now, these words describe the true character of Satan, the true character of the devil. He's the adversary not only of God, but of God's saints. Already in paradise, that slandering was evident. How does the devil work? He's a slanderer. He's a liar. He slandered the name of God when he said to Eve that God lied. He called God a liar. That's slander. He shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5. The devil slandered Jesus when he was on earth, trying to persuade the Jews and the chief priests and Pilate to accuse Jesus of blasphemy, even though Jesus was not a blasphemer, and finally accusing them or guiding them to crucify Jesus. The devil brings charges against God's saints that are unjust, that are not true. Evil accusations that can't be substantiated. And we just think about one instance is Job. Remember how the devil appeared before God, the God of heaven and earth, trying to convince God that Job was serving God only for money. That Job really wasn't interested in God. He didn't love God. Job was merely serving God for what he could get out of it. He tries to convince God. Job just wants cattle. He just wants food. And he's serving you for food. The devil slanders God's people in this world. He tries to persuade the world that God's people are radical. That they're narrow-minded. That they're bigots. That they're worthy of being driven out of the world. And we know the effect that the devil has on the world. Past history of persecution as well as the current persecution that is taking place. He succeeds in convincing the wicked that the saints ought to die. They're not worthy to raise children. They're not worthy to bring up the children that are entrusted to them. They're obstacles to progress. That the world would be better. The world would be a more safe place without Christians. And the world believes the lie of the devil and persecutes and comes against God's people. But the devil also brings those accusations in our consciences. He comes to God's people and he tries to get us to turn our eyes away from Christ. Turn our eyes away from the way of salvation. And he tries to tell us that we're terrible sinners. That we can't possibly be the children of God. He tries to convince us that we are to focus on our unworthiness. He tries to get us to look at our sins, our unworthiness. That's slander. While we know our sin, we know our unworthiness. We know that we're grievous sinners in ourselves. We also know, too, the wonder of the cross, the victory that is ours in it. The declaration of our righteousness, as we noted this morning, that I am righteous in Christ. And therefore, get thee behind me, Satan. The devil tries to shake our faith in Jesus Christ. Tries to instill doubt and fear in the place of trust, peace, and quietness. 
The effectiveness of the devil is that he's a spirit. We can't see him. We can't tell where he is. He's roaming the world. And he attacks in unseen ways, ways that we would not expect. As a spirit, he has access to our thoughts. He has access to our minds. He has access to our desires. And he knows what's going on in our minds. He knows the thoughts that we have. So that he can come within us as a spirit and he can plant seeds of doubt, plant seeds of fear. He can lead us into ways of temptation. And he tempts us then to pursue fellowship with him and fellowship with the ways of darkness. He tempts us to rebel against God. Now as a spirit, not only does he do this on his own, he has many servants. We know that the devil is limited. He's not able to be everywhere present like God is. But he has thousands upon thousands of servants who serve him willingly. Now there are times when Jesus attacked, when the devil attacked individuals personally. We have, for instance, Matthew 4 and the devil's attack of Jesus. The devil personally comes against Jesus in order to bring three powerful temptations against him. The devil personally attacked Job. We read that the devil entered the heart of Judas. But generally he makes use of his servants. These demons, fallen angels, who assist him then in entering into the minds of men and women and in tempting and persecuting the people of God. Peter himself knew the power. He knew the effectiveness of the devil. Now Peter, to his shame, had minimized that seriousness in time past. And that's... The emphasis that Peter here is placing, don't minimize this adversary. He's a powerful adversary. And we can hear Peter. Peter is saying, I did. I did it to my demise. Peter proudly had had boasted about the fact that others may reject Jesus, but not me. I'm going to be faithful. I'll stand with him through thick and thin. Peter needed to learn lessons in humility and lessons in how weak he was. And he learned that in a moment of matter, a matter of mere hours, he would deny Jesus three times to his shame. And in self-pity, he decided, I might as well go back to fishing because there's not going to be any place anymore for me within ministry. But Jesus didn't allow that. Jesus pursued him. And restored him. Later on, Peter created some trouble as well and division in the church when he separated himself from the Gentiles who were eating, moving Paul to have to bring a public admonition against him. Peter knew the power of the devil. He knew how quickly the devil would get a hold of him and lure him into ways of sin. And now he says, by the inspiration of the Spirit, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, As a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. The devil here is compared to a roaring lion. This is a significant comparison. It's not only one that the saints in Peter's day would have understood, but it's one that we understand as well. Those in Peter's day were familiar with lions. And they understood much about the mannerism of lions They were fearful of those lions because those lions often would attack at night and would come into their villages. 
The comparison teaches us much about the devil. And we want to look at that in detail for a few moments this evening. What can we learn about the devil from this comparison to a lion? First of all, a lion is subtle. They're sneaky. The lion is not going to attack during daylight unless he absolutely has to. He's not going to attack in the open hours of the day. But he's going to attack at dusk. He's going to attack in the dark. And many lived in fear of those attacks of the devil. The devil, the lion, those attacks of lions. The lion had excellent night vision and a great sense of smell and hearing, which made him expert killers in the darkness. Lions are not very fast. Most animals can outrun them. And so they needed to be cunning. They needed to be sneaky in order to get their victims. Think of the devil. The devil stalks in darkness. This is why God calls us, walk in the light. Don't walk in darkness. That's where the devil is. Walk in the light so that you can see him, so that he's exposed. When you walk in darkness, you open yourself up to temptation. Stay out of the lion's country. Stay out of darkness and temptation. But also the devil uses deceit. Ambush, like the lion. The devil deceived Eve. He ambushed Adam. The lion, when attacking its prey, will step closer and closer, coming in very, very sneaky, only moving when the prey isn't looking, in order that the prey is caught off guard, and the prey doesn't see the lion coming. And all of a sudden, the prey doesn't think they're in danger. They're just minding their own business, quietly eating, and all of a sudden they get pounced on. We think we're safe. But the devil sneaks up on us. He creeps up. He creeps into our thoughts. He creeps into our desires. Until he's all over us. Until we wonder, what happened? How did this happen so quickly? He allowed us to have fun. He allowed us to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And he devoured, he destroyed our lives. We were not sober. We weren't vigilant. But sometimes also a lion will surround an attack, especially in a situation where the animal is far larger. Say an elephant. Then a pride of lions, that is a whole group of lions, are going to attack now this elephant. And they come around, they spread out around this elephant. One jumps on the elephant, bites him, claws him. They continue to work on him and continue to wear him down and to wear him out until finally the elephant gets worn down and falls to the ground and then they go in for the attack and they kill. Sometimes that's the way the devil works. He just slowly, over time, wears us down with temptation, weakening us, trying to get his grip on us so that eventually... We're tripped up. He never lets us out of his sights as he's constantly pursuing with that craftiness and that subtlety. The expert, the lion also is an expert of camouflage. He's easily concealed in the grass. Now he doesn't need that concealment in order to hide from predators because he doesn't have anybody hunting him. But that concealing is so that he can hunt. His color enables him to hide as he's hunting. 
The devil is a master of disguise. Think of the ways in which the Bible portrays him. He attempts to come as an angel of the light. He portrays himself as one who's looking out for our well-being. He's trying to pursue and trying to grant us blessing. He wants to make us happy. And so as 2 Corinthians 11, 14, and 15 talk, he transforms himself into an angel of light. He makes things that are dangerous look appealing. And again, he spins them with a lie. And so we're to be alert. How can he do that? Worldly music. We lower our guard. We begin to think it's not really a big deal. And pretty soon that worldly music is consuming our lives. And it begins to take over. He does so with a lack of respect for the Bible. We begin to disregard the Bible maybe on one point or another point, And pretty soon, with time, we begin have a lack of respect for God and for his word. If we start playing with fire, it's only a matter of time before we'll get burned. And subtly, the devil makes use of these ways in which he can try to lead us into those things that are dangerous by making them look appealing. Now, there are some who survive lion attacks, but they're always left with scars. And so it is with the devil. There are times when we survive, by God's grace, those attacks. But spiritual scars remain as a reminder. The lion is hungry, has an appetite. He can eat vegetables, but he's not satisfied with that. He wants meat, and he's going to eat anything. Sometimes even lions will eat their own cubs. So cruel they are. Nothing is safe from a lion. And so it is with the devil. No one is safe from the devil. The devil is never satisfied. The devil always wants more. And he comes after us then with no greater desire than to see the destruction of the people who serve God. That's his delight. Those whom God loves, he wants their souls. And he wants to be able to prove himself to God as the one who's capable and able to bring about their downfall. A lion is active. While we go to a zoo sometimes and we see the lions sleeping, they seem lazy in their enclosures. Such we know is not the natural way of a lion. While awake, they're looking for opportunities not only to hunt and to kill, but also to expand their territory. They're never satisfied with what they have. The devil is not lying around doing nothing. The devil is watching. He's looking. He's always eager to find opportunities, and he always wants to expand his area of influence, just like a lion. The lion does so as the head of a pack. Often lions will hunt together. They have others assisting them. The devil is the head of a pack, and he comes after the saints in all of his fury. The lion is cruel. Lions are not fussy about what they kill, as we noted. They'll kill as they have opportunity. They are dangerous. And we know that. If a worker at a zoo is careless, quickly their life is taken by the the lion. As the lion will pounce on them, and with one swat of its claws is able to break the neck of a human. But what do lions do in the wild? They target the weak. They target the young. They target those that are struggling and stragglers. Their roar is terrifying. Talks here about the roaring lion. The lion lets out a loud roar that 
paralyzes and confuses their victim with fear. If you wander into their territory, they'll roar to protect that territory at all costs. So the devil, the devil is cruel. He attacks us when we're down. He kicks us when we're weak. He goes after our children to get at us. If we're straying from the shepherd, we're in danger. He's protective of what he claims as his territory. And he will try to protect that territory at all costs. When we go into battle to reclaim an aspect of our lives that we've lost for a time to the devil, the devil is going to use fear. He's going to use confusion to try to hinder us. He doesn't want that area of our life reclaimed for Christ. He wants to continue his control and expand his control in our lives. Do you know how a lion eats? A lion first goes after the heart of an animal, and then it will eat other of its organs, and then it goes to the head and works its way typically down the body. The heart is almost always first. What does the devil want? The devil wants your and my hearts. And so we're instructed in Scripture, guard your heart, Proverbs 4, verse 23. After that, he's going to go for our heads, false thinking, doctrine, worldly philosophy, to try to lure us into thinking that is unbiblical and ungodly. Be vigilant. The lion is powerful. There's no animal that can stand before a lion. The devil is powerful. And the devil makes use of forces that are spiritual, that are earthly, and that are carnal. He employs a whole host against God and against God's church and God's saints. The devil knows the word of God. He knows the word of God better than you and me. The devil could pass any examination before classes or synod. He knows the texts. He knows what to say. He doesn't become forgetful like we do. With time, we begin to forget, not the devil. His memory is as good today as it was over 6,000 years ago when he first approached Adam and Eve in the garden. The devil knows you better than you know him. And he knows what arguments to use. He knows what temptations are going to get you. He knows what you're most vulnerable to. The child of God needs to be aware of the power and the influence of the devil. He is out to destroy your faith. He's out to destroy the faith of your children. And he will do everything in his disposal to bring about the accomplishment of his goals. That lion from hell is constantly prowling about. And he's got his eye on you. He's got his eye on me. He's not interested in the world. He's already got them. They're already his allies. He's not so interested in those who are sleeping through church services, just going to church for show, those who are conducting themselves outwardly in obedience, but just for personal gain. He knows. He already has them. And as soon as a little pressure is exerted on them, easily they'll reveal their true character and fall into his ways. The child of God who's fleeing to Christ, who's walking in a broken and a contrite spirit, who's seeking to stand immovable on the basis of God's word and the truth, who has courage to condemn the world, who tries to flee from it. Those are the ones who are the objects of all the strength and terror that the devil can mount. 
against them. And so the apostle says, be sober, be vigilant, whom resist steadfast in the faith. Now what does that resistance look like? We are called individually to resist temptation. We need to do everything in our power to keep the enemy from tempting us. Now it seems that we live in an age when sin is glossed over, sin is minimized, sin becomes something that is taken so lightly and it's not treated very seriously. Seldom do we think in terms of the real threat of the devil and his demons so that the devil is using the society in which we live to lull us to sleep. Sin isn't so serious. Sin isn't such a big deal. A little bit of a lie here, a lie there, cheating here, stealing a little bit there. That's not a problem. And so the devil tries to get us to treat sin lightly in our lives. He doesn't want us to think about him as a terror, as a threat. So sin becomes rather abstract often for the child of God. We pray, forgive us our sins, but we really don't think concretely of ourselves as sinners, nor of the seriousness of the sins in which we engage. The devil really has little concrete reality in our consciousnesses. How different from the vivid battles of Martin Luther. One reads the writings of Martin Luther, and Martin Luther vividly engaged in battle against the devil. One can wonder sometimes about the vivid character and nature of his writings, but Martin Luther fought against temptation. Temptations would rise up in his mind, and immediately he would jump to the conclusion, that's the devil, the devil is trying to get me to do this or that. He's alleged even to have taken his ink bottle and thrown it at the wall in an attempt to try to deter the devil from the temptations that the devil was bringing his way. He felt his presence. He felt the devil in the room with him. And he was doing battle against that force of evil. We could wish today that people were as deeply conscious of that power of evil as it's present around us. And that resisting begins then with understanding and being aware of his existence. Knowing that he is a cunning, powerful enemy. Knowing that he is able to confuse us to such a degree that we are convinced that we're doing what's right in God's eyes. He's around us, not only, but he's also able to influence our natures as a spirit. We need to be aware of our tendency to cover up our sin, our tendency to minimize the seriousness of our sin. And we need to know the tremendous threat that the devil is. Resist, the apostle says. Where our defense is sagging, we need to reinforce it. We need to be fully armed with the armor of God. And you're familiar with that armor and the putting on of that armor that is instructed of us by the apostle. Ultimately, that armor involves the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Knowing the word of God. Knowing what it is that God requires of us. Knowing the promises of God's word. The word of God alone is able to drive away the devil. Jesus expressed that. Get thee behind me, Satan. What did he do every time when the devil came at him with temptation? He quoted scripture. And that's the power that needs to be 
placed against the devil, the word of God. With the word of God and the gift of faith, the devil is thwarted. The devil is driven away. He cannot stand before the word. And so we pray for the grace to oppose the cause of the devil. We pray for the strength to resist, to be faithful as the children of God. And we spend time in the word. We live in the word. As we walk close to our shepherd, the devil flees. It's when we're straying from the shepherd. That's when the lion gets the lambs and the sheep. That's when the devil will have his way with you and with me. When he comes roaring and he comes threatening to harm and to kill, we flee to Christ and we cling to the shepherd the bishop of our souls, the one alone able to preserve and to keep us, standing on the basis of God's word and God's promises. And we take the offensive and we drive him away as we resist his carnal advances. How do we do that? By being sober and vigilant. In verses 8 and 9, whom resist steadfast in the faith, and then In verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, and then whom resist, steadfast in the faith. What is it to be sober? To be sober is to exercise self-control. It's the opposite of one who's drunk, one who's staggering, and one who has no control of self. Just imagine one who's drunk, staggering through a jungle that's infested with lions, The one who's drunk is not aware of his surroundings. He's not aware of the threat that exists all around. He's out of touch with reality. He's confused. He's in no position to be thinking of danger. He's not watching. He's not praying. That one opens himself quickly to attack. Spiritually, the same is possible. One who is staggering through this life, focused on pleasure, on worldliness, on entertainment. He's drunk with this world. He's occupied with the things of this world. That's all he's thinking about. He's out of touch with the dangers that are around him. He's oblivious to the threat of the devil. And the devil is there, watching, waiting, ready to pounce on easy prey. The one who's sober, in contrast, is the one who knows God's word. The one who applies God's word to his or her life. Who knows the danger of the devil. Knows the threat of the devil. Knows the reality of the weakness of his own flesh. Knows the power and temptations of the world. And he understands his calling before God. The one who's sober is able to be vigilant. If you're not sober, you can't be vigilant, and you won't be vigilant. But a sober man advancing through the jungle is cautious. He's taking one careful step at a time. He's looking around him. He's alert to the fact that there may be predators that are lurking around trying to pounce on him. He's always careful. The sober one isn't proud. The sober one isn't drunk with worldliness and pleasure. He's living according to the truth of Scripture as he advances through life. His life is about God. It's about the glory of God and his desires to pursue God and the will of God. In his home, in his schooling, in his work, at church, in relation to his country, 
in relation to the workplace. He's alert to the enemies of his soul. And he advances carefully, watchful, intent to spy the enemy and the temptation before the enemy spots him and comes to destroy him unopposed. He must be vigilant. And literally that's the idea of not falling asleep. It's the idea of knowing the enemy, understanding the cunning of the enemy, recognizing the danger that that enemy can do to me, and ready with the word, ready to resist. Because the devil is attacking old and young. The devil is attacking those who work as well as those who are playing. The devil is attacking those day and night. He's constantly out and about, and therefore vigilance. Be steadfast in the faith, the apostle says. Faith, we know, is a gift from God that unites us to Jesus Christ. The child of God has no strength in himself. Of ourselves, we would be devoured, we would be destroyed by the devil. We would never be able to defend ourselves. We would be drunk, asleep. But faith is the God-given means by which we receive power and strength from Jesus Christ by his Spirit. And faith draws us to Christ. We find in him our hope. We find in him our strength. We cling to him by faith, knowing that in him we are more than conquerors. In him we have the victory. We are ready and we are victorious in Jesus Christ. And that faith reveals itself in a ready knowledge, a hearty confidence in Christ as our Lord and our Savior. We're not wavering. We trust that we belong to Jesus Christ. And that standing in him, we are safe and we are protected. And by faith, we grow in an ever more clear and full understanding of the knowledge that God gives in his word. We grow in an awareness of our own sin, our own weakness. And in the grace of humility to lean on Christ. We're given complete reliance, not on ourselves, but in him alone. And that's the wonder of God's grace in Jesus Christ. You and I cannot, we will not resist the devil by our own strength. We look to him, Jesus Christ, as our helper and our strength. We need his shed blood, his sacrifice is that on which our life is based. And we come to the table with that confession. I need Christ. I can't stand alone. It's his blood that was shed for me, his body that was broken for me, that alone enables me to stand over against the devil. I have nothing that I can give to the devil that would defend me against his accusation that I'm a sinner and I deserve to die other than the faithfulness of my Savior on my behalf. Now the victory is set forth here, and that victory is in the cross. It's in the wonder of our Savior Jesus Christ. But interestingly, the passage states, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. And it talks about here the fact that The God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, established, strengthened, settle you, 
verse 10. We're inclined sometimes to think that our situation is unique. It's unique from everyone else. And we try to justify our weakness then on that basis. You don't know what I faced. You don't know how I was tempted in this situation. I couldn't. There's no way I could have stood. There's no way I could have maintained faithfulness. You don't understand how difficult, how challenging it was. We hear this. Individuals claiming they had to sin because there was no other option for them. And stating that if you don't understand that, then you just don't understand the unique situation I was in. Beloved, we're not alone in the battle. All our afflictions are accomplished in our brethren. That is, all the saints stand shoulder to shoulder bearing the slander of the devil. He doesn't bring anything new that someone else has not experienced. As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ, our eldest brother, suffered temptation. He suffered lies. He withstood on our behalf and for our sake. And we go forward as more than conquerors through him who is our Lord and our Savior. Paul here is, Peter is reflecting here on the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. The idea being that God will give you a way of escape. Colossians 1, verse 24 talks about the fact that there is a suffering left yet for the church to endure. Jesus bore everything that was necessary to atone for our sin. But there is yet a suffering that is left behind for the body of Christ, the church, to endure. And until that suffering is completed, Christ will not return. That's the idea here that the apostle is speaking of. There's a suffering that's yet remaining for the people of God. That suffering we are to understand as to be expected. And these afflictions are going on now in the world. God has ordained them as that which is necessary for our salvation. Now this means that, first of all, God ordained a specific number and amount of temptation and suffering and affliction through which each one of his children must pass. Even the devil, even the demons are in God's hands, that means. God is limiting them. He's controlling them. He's using them for the good of his saints. So that though we are tempted, though we face that opposition, we're to know and we're to believe God is the one sovereignly controlling it. And he's giving grace to his children so that they will never have to face too much. And we are not alone. The saints who have gone before us testify of the victory. They testify of the triumph of faith. They testify how the devil pursued them. How the devil had his way with them. But how God worked repentance and sorrow and they were able to know and believe the victory that is theirs by faith. Only a while. That's the point here of the apostle. After that, ye have suffered a while. Your pilgrimage is going to involve suffering. You're going to be tempted. But look to God and look to the power of his spirit. Look to his word. So encouraging the Bible is that it states to us that we are to expect that as the end gets closer, we will be called before the authorities and we will have to give an account of what we've done and how we've conducted ourselves. And the Bible says, don't worry about it. God will give you words to say. God will put his spirit within you as it dwells in you and he will give you the words to say so that you need not be concerned. He will care for you. 
and he will uphold you, even in those difficult moments. So that verse 10 here is not just a prayer, it's a promise of God for his children. The God of grace will preserve you. All God's children are safe in Jesus Christ and through his perfect sacrifice on their behalf. The devil cannot touch us because Jesus Christ paid for every last sin we ever committed and ever will commit. The devil cannot devour us because we are God's children. And the victory then is ours in Christ. Resist, watch, be sober as those who know your union to Christ and the victory that is yours in him. And God gives his word and God gives the sacraments to strengthen our faith in those promises. That our salvation is for his glory. And that God is glorifying himself through our resistance. And that as we come to the table, we demonstrate our desire to give him all the glory. To thank and to praise him with the whole of our lives. To not give the devil one aspect of our lives, but wholly consecrated to Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And God has compassion on his children in their need. And as the God of all grace, he gives us his word. He gives us his spirit. He gives us the sacraments. And as we examine ourselves, we see how weak we are. We realize how often the devil has his way with us. And we repent. We cry out to our Lord Jesus Christ. And we look to him for the strength that is necessary to resist. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee that thou art our keeper, our protector. We look to thee in humility as the one alone able to preserve and to keep us. Work in us the knowledge of our great need for Christ and his atoning sacrifice on our behalf. And as by faith we lay hold on that sacrifice, and as we gather next Sunday in order to partake of his shed blood and his broken body, may we know the victory that is ours in him, and may we press on in thankful praise unto thee as those that are sober, as those that resist the devil, and as those that give glory and honor to thee. Amen.